Hey everybody, y'all know me. Daddy Double T in my Jeep Cherokee. And them two T's mean you're riding in the total truth zone. Where libtards fear to tread. Because the only fuel you and me need is common sense. First, I just want to say thank you. I love you guys. I appreciate the support. Remember to hit the like button. Check me out on Patreon for exclusive content too hot for YouTube. I even got me one of them cameos now. And for $9.95 all this week, I'll wish you a special happy birthday in that double T style. No matter what them trigger libs say, we warriors in this fight together. I couldn't do it without you. You know what? We're winning. And they know we're winning. And it makes them scared. Which brings me to today's topic. Hey, sorry about the messing back. I took Tucker to Sonic after his soccer practice. But anyway, today's topic is impeachment. I'm sure y'all read the headlines or caught some of it on Twitter and Facebook. But hey, if you ask me, I think the whole thing is a big forest pack full of ragged up bulldogs with shit for brains. Excuse my language. But the double T, he keep it real. I mean, have you seen this? Nancy Pelosi, she got the face of a wet couch and the jackets look like the carpet samples for an angry lesbian bank orgy. And she thinks she's doing God's work by pretending she got the goods in between. That's right, she thinks she's a man. Now, I know y'all gonna call me sexist, but it's scientific fact. And I got women friends who back me up on this, pretty ones too. And I'm not saying all women, but like 94% of them got in over their heads when they try to do a man's job, right? And what Nancy's too stupid to realize is that Donald Trump, that's a man. What's more, he's our man. And because we man, and he's our man, that means he's a man's man. It's like what the Bible said. You can pelt me with hurtful words, but as long as I got a slong, I can knock him back down your throat. Seriously. Have you seen these pathetic dumbocrats? That's what I call Democrats. You can get it on a tote bag in my online shop. But really, we all know that Democrats are more like a hop sack full of hot sheep shit. Now, I ain't been watching all the impeachment because I have a job. But what I've seen is like, who the hell do these people think they're fooling? Libtards are all like, he's impeached. And I'm out. hold up, baby. You got to step back a little and do your research. What does that even mean, impeached? Still gonna win another term. I mean, it's a sham investigation. Anyone can see that. I thought you Democrats were supposed to be college educated. And you can't even figure out that impeachment don't mean nothing to Trump. What you done wrong anyway? Answer that. Where's the crime? Make up your mind. Point me to the collusion, McGruff. Asking that, and they're all like, no, you did, you did, you did. They can't even form sentences because your logic done broke their brains again. But really, it's like, don't even waste your time explaining nothing about how impeachment works because they think they are going to wake up tomorrow and some magic black angry lesbian's going to be in charge. Boy, I'm telling you, you're funny for one so doggone sad, you know. It's just here. We where we at because thanks to Obama. You want to talk about racist? He was racist. I mean, this country is now more divided than it's ever been, you think about it. He's shattered families, and he's totally destroyed lives. That's the bottom line right there. Real talk now. One thing about the whole impeachment is that President 
He ain't even mad. That's how much he's boss. We Americans, we ain't mad either. I ain't mad. Are you mad? That's what people don't get. We Americans, we don't get mad. That's that whole other cheek thing. We pull ourselves up our hearts and we walk on. And that's what we gotta do as impeachment people. Recognize it for the nothing it is, walk on. Keep moving. America needs us. America needs us. Walk on. America needs us. America. I ain't even mad. And what's more, I don't even care what your sister been telling you. She's been trying to give it twins for years on that thing. That's just how Kathy is. We both know this. We accept it. She isn't happy unless she's causing some kind of drama. Look, I'm not the one who brought hate into our home. I don't know where these accusations come from. What I do know is that I don't appreciate you pitting our son against me. Yes, I said our son. Because you tend to forget that I am his father. I'm not the one who changed, Diana. You did. You're the confused one. You're the one who has to get her shit together. I'll tell you what, you do you, Diana. You do you. He's my son. And he needs to be able to think for himself. That's what all these pamphlets and printouts were for. I have weaponized my son with knowledge. My son will not be the victim of the lamestream media and the Soros deep state. I'm not mad. Seriously, it's hilarious. Because you know what, Diana? He's still your president. <laughs> Four more years. Oh, Jesus. Hello from the other side. A list of common thousand times to tell you I'm sorry. Everything that I've done, but when I call you, never seem to be home. Six-year-old white man without a podcast. And though a podcast was born, 
and 18 episodes and 10 hours later, here we are, embarking on a second year of... Uh, hello, good evening, it's 1985, good morning. Good morning, and welcome once again to Concurrence. Our special guest is podcaster Corey Fry upon the occasion of his first year as host of the execrable It's 1985 Good Morning. Mr. Fry is speaking to us via telephone from his apartment near an unnamed graveyard. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Indeed. Indubitably. First, I'd like to go back to the beginning. The inception, or conception, or genesis, if you will, of what has quickly become one of the most abominable of pointless clamors spat apathetically into a clogged universe of bits and idiocy, because... I understand its inspiration was born of equal parts insomnia and near catatonic ennui. That's true. I've, uh, I've told the story before on the actual podcast, but um, as I recall, I was listening to the first episode of Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. Oh, he's funny. Oh, he's very funny. And the show is great. But I remember, like, it was like a two or three on a Sunday morning... And for whatever reason, I just suddenly got this idea to start my own podcast. And the whole point would be that it was pointless. It would have no real theme. It was, um, I kind of saw it as, uh, initially as a parody of an amateur podcast with uh, delusions of grandeur. And the title, It's 1985, Good Morning, it, it has no meaning whatsoever. It just struck me as an odd pairing of two sentiments. I mean, obviously, it's not 1985, and the show has nothing to do with 1985. And um, I, I liked Good Morning because I could then juxtapose that with Good Afternoon or Good Evening or whenever I got around to recording. But um, to make a long story short, it's 3 in the morning, I've got this idea, and I'm coming up with the bits for the first episode, and then around 5 a.m. I went to McDonald's, or whenever it opened, and I just fed myself a few biscuits and uh, drank a Coke, and I, I wrote the whole thing out right there, the whole episode. Yes, that first episode is rather straightforward, whereas later you seem to become more experimental. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that first one, I'm just kind of discovering the Anchor app... And uh, at that point, I'm, I'm more accustomed in real life to speaking in bursts than over a sustained amount of time. So that, that first episode, I actually recorded paragraph by paragraph, multiple takes, until I, I kind of got what I thought worked rhythmically. And that took about six hours total. And the only part that moved really fast was when... <clears throat> Uh, there's a part where I uh, I pretend to be a very pissed-off, diva-esque Ira Glass, though I, I sound absolutely nothing like him. And that wouldn't have worked unless I just yelled the whole monologue out in one take. And that took a few attempts because it was, it was kind of hard on my voice. I, uh, you know, I occasionally find myself going, <coughs> and almost crying. My eyes were watering sometimes because I was yelling so loud. And uh, it was also kind of embarrassing because I uh, I live in this apartment complex with uh, neighbors to the left, right, and above. 
and uh, I shudder to think what they thought of some guy yelling multiple times at the top of his lungs on a quiet Sunday afternoon in December about hoping someone drowns in their own fucking blood. Yes, and then you branched out into infernally ambitious missteps and started doing voices. Yeah, I used to fancy myself a decent impersonator. My big one as a kid was Robin Leach, the host of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Um, Dana Carvey had one too, but I think mine was maybe a little better. I think I have a better grasp of the froggy type voice. I'll see what I can do now. My voice has changed considerably since I was a kid. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Here's Robin Leach as heard on Thomas Dolby's The Key to Her Ferrari from the 1988 album Aliens Ate My Buick. Okay. <clears throat> There was one room in a house that was always kept locked. It was the garage. Okay. <clears throat> anyway, yeah, I just liked uh, manipulating my voice, and that's kind of what the podcast rekindled in me, you know, um, all the things I did when I was younger, like audio tricks with multiple tape recorders. Could you give us an example? Well, this is an example. I mean, I don't think we're fooling anyone into believing this is an, a conversation between two people. This is a bunch of audio files fed into a program in a certain order to give the appearance of an unscripted interview where your questions aren't clumsily constructed inorganic expository excuses to wax long-winded about shit I want to talk about anyway. And obviously I'm not on a, on a telephone. This is a cheap voice effect. In fact, I'm resting on my stomach on an unmade bed. It's like 2.30 in the afternoon and I'm still in pajamas. Therefore, so are you. Well, that's not entirely true. We ordered a burrito from Uber Eats. Yep. Yeah, we did. And it was delicious. Shall we continue the pretense? Oh, absolutely. Next segment. Hello, I'm Dale Wellboss for Bukin' of Sun Motors. With no reliance in. A boy that smell nice, despite being shipped from Newark. As a member of Lima Valley's exclusive Plymouth dealer, we got a lot full of these babies in your choice of colors. Cream white, diaper white, eggshell white, bedsheet white, and entitled organ voter white, which is the same shade as bedsheet white, but more transparent. So, come see the car that Motor Trend magazine named Car of the Year, and for 10 bucks you can lick the Mitsubishi Silent Shaft. Stop by for a test drive. We got balloons and hot dogs for the kids and a stock waiting room with nothing but 70 zero copies of Boeing Monthly for your mopey adolescence. That's Bjorken and Sun Motors near the Pacific Boulevard overpass. You can't miss it, but you will in order to keep up the flow of traffic. But don't worry, we'll be waiting with your keys and credit future in our hands. And we've returned. I'm Alistair Nunyabiz, and you're listening to Concurrence. My guest is Cory Fry, reflecting on a full year of his rightfully shunned Blovio Fest. It's 1985. Good morning. Now, what we just heard there was a character you've deployed from the beginning. Dale. Yes, that, that's Dale. His uh, name is actually pronounced Dale Wayobouts. 
Um, according to, to my uh, first script, that's spelled W-A-E-U-B-A-U-T-Z. And I chose that combination because it matched the way he spoke. It's kind of like Bob Labla from Arrested Development. They're all well about. You kind of gum... You can kind of gum flap it into submission, just to kind of open and close your mouth and uh, emit sound in between. Or Dale Wellbouts. Um, I created Dale to avoid a problem in the first episode. Um, obviously, it's not cool to yammer for a half hour or whatever without anything to break it up, so I installed what I believed were natural stops in the script, and then I'd slip Dale in with a gag commercial, and that allowed me to use music and a different voice. I've had maybe two legit commercials in the podcast lifetime, and the rest have largely been Dale. Uh, now, I record this in my hometown of Albany, Oregon. But it was never my intent to tie the podcast to the city in any way. I've devoted exactly one episode to where I live, and that was... Um, Episode 9, The Town That Slowly Opened Its Eyes, and you can probably guess from the title that it's pretty critical. Um, the commercial parodies, such as they are, are really my only references to Albany, and they kind of speak specifically to people my age who grew up here. Um, all the businesses I promote have been gone for like 20 or 30 years. Uh, the first episode had spots for Hangar 18, which was an arcade here back in the early to late 80s. And the Marco Polo Hotel was this, um, it was this <laughs> derelict mid-century shitbox that got torn down sometime in the early 2000s after kind of rotting in place for 40 years under the weight of various communicable diseases. Um, it was the kind of place that was still hawking the fact that it had colored televisions in select rooms. <laughs> and, um, Audio Addict was a short-lived record store where you could buy your skinny puppy imports. And uh, that's actually where I bought Husker Du Zen Arcade in 1985. Um, Oli's Something Else Eatery was a hamburger joint with strange hours that closed in 1990. Um, the power station was a teenage nightclub downtown in the mid-80s, and Buchan and Sun Motors was a car lot near the Pacific Boulevard overpass, where my parents did, in fact, buy a cream-colored 1984 Plymouth Reliant after trading in our family Chevy Nova. Um, Dale's voice was inspired by a figure from my childhood, who owned a franchise of car dealerships up in northern Oregon, um, a guy named Bob Lanfear. If you grew up on Channel 12, KBTV, you saw his commercials all the time. Hi, I'm Bob Lanfear. He was always asking you, asking you to come visit him in downtown Beaverton. Um, when I first did his voice, the feedback I got from my buddy Sam was that it teetered on the verge of racial stereotype, which I wasn't going for, so I tempered uh, Dale's impediment to be more East Coast. And my thing with Dale was that he was a reluctant pitchman who nevertheless insisted on doing his own commercials, and he just didn't give a fuck. And how would you rate your English accent? Funny you should ask, because I do this terribly bastardized impression of the late James Mason. <laughs> it started out as a simple, oh yes, oh yes. You know, like his, his regal evil shtick in, uh, from the original Salem's Lot? Oh yes, I should think Mr. Barlow would like you very much indeed. Oh yes, I do. Oh yes, and dear boy, 
Oh, yes. And then I kind of made him a, a character, and I embellished it a little by making him more histrionic than dignified, where I constrict every word as it struts up my trachea like I'm loading an erudite catapult. Uh, he's fun to play because he allows me to use words I typically avoid in my more conversational podcast tone. I'm, uh, as a matter of fact, I'm still working on my Sir Ralph Richardson shopping at Safeway. Is this produce I see before me? Might I use this coupon for Lucky Charms? Oh, repulsive. Would it be presumptuous on my part to inquire about your favorite episode? Kind of, because the truth is I don't actually like any of the episodes. I think they could all be better were I a better performer or had access to better technology. Like, I really fucking hate this one. I ain't even finished recording it. I'm terribly impatient. Uh, when I get into it, I just want to get it over with. Then months later, I'm hitting myself. Oh, you should have done this. Here's a better transition. There are avenues of exploration you missed. But most of all, you sound like an absolute chode, and were I a bunch of words, I couldn't think of a worse fate than being formed in your brain and released into the atmosphere, riding your verbal stench. But in answer to your question, I have three episodes I'm fond of. Um, the first is episode three, obviously, Love at First Sting, or A Thousand Rainy Days Since We First Met, which I recorded with my friend Les Garrett, my first and only guest to date. Um, I had gotten wind of a box set collecting all the police albums, and I knew Les was a huge police fan, I mean a serious police fan, I mean a real police fan. Um, someone who understands and appreciates the genius of Stuart Copeland's work at a depth we both expound upon for about two hours and thirty minutes, going over every record in the box, every song. Uh, Les's backstory was fascinating, and he's, God, he's so excellent off the cuff. I mean, a true connoisseur of verbiage. And we just sat down with a beer each and riffed in my kitchen, and I'm very grateful he was up for it. I'd like to have more guests, so we'll, uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, maybe I'll ask Les back this season for a, uh, a reappraisal of Eddie Murphy's Raw or something. Eddie, what have you done for me lately? Eddie, I want half! <laughs> uh, my second favorite is episode 12, Oh, My Name is Oscar. It doesn't get half the love the, the others do, but, um... For, for as much as it's worth, I thought it was pretty clever. I st structured it like a dramatic talking head with uh, me as the talking head, uh, a guy named Oscar Adamson. I had a better last name, but I had forgotten it by the time I sat down to record it. Um, it's based on a premise I've played with before, because as a music critic, I have heard the story so many times about older peers who get you into music, and in this instance, the older peer is actually part of a street team put together by Columbia Records to hawk some of its soft-selling back catalog. Um, in Oscar's instance, he was dealing with obscure art rock albums like Terry Riley's A Rainbow and Curved Air, but uh, mainly a 1971 John Cale collaboration with Riley called Church of Anthrax, which is a real album, and it's a real interesting album for certain. Um, I also licensed my first full track for use on that episode, uh, Panya Moon's Famous Last Words, which fit the tone just perfectly. Uh, finally, I love how 
episode 13 is structured, um, that, it's called, um, that 1987 show, Waiting for Sammy. I, afterward, I added two new segments after it was published, and I ended it on a borrowed sound effect that I think works without any intrusion on my part. I was able to resurrect my love for Sammy Hagar, even if I couldn't quite believably resurrect the voice I had when I was 14. I mean, I tried. I mean, I used a couple of vocal manipulators, but I sounded shittier than usual. Uh, the commercial in the episode was totally right with the theme, and it captured me as a young man pining pathetically for a girl, and uh, I even got to spoil the ending of a 32-year-old Kevin Costner movie. <laughs> and uh, I also had the balls to record and publish myself singing Love Walks In badly. And that part's true. I always did like the lines about silken gowns and silver lights. And, um, you know, Sammy would be, he'd be a hell of an interview. A hell of a get. Although, as an actual grown-up journalist, I think I'd ask him better questions than the one I pose here about how awesome he is, even though he is awesome. Um, Sammy, if you're out there, I still love you, and the lines are always open. Um, others I like, um, episode three, the last Christmas episode, where I play my great-grandfather telling an, an original Christmas story, that is one I actually wrote specifically for the episode. Um, I have no idea what he sounded like. He died 20 yeah, 20-some years before I was born. He probably didn't sound like that, but it was a fun role. Um, oh gee, oh gosh, oh golly, my copyright protections expired, was more of a straight-ahead NPR-type piece, but I got to talk about the comedy team of Olsen and Johnson. Um, a journalist spends the night in with an exploitation classic. Well, that was just fucking weird. Uh, a lot of collected sounds and recording myself in rooms with differing acoustics on purpose. And uh, last night at 46, I was totally drunk. I uh, published it for posterity without even thinking about it, and to this day, I refuse to listen to it. Um, an elegy for friends in this or any world. I'm proud of that one, but it's a tough listen for me because it... Um, it revisits part of my life I, I miss very much, and people I miss very much. One in particular whom we had just lost at that time in April of 2019. And um, that's probably the most real and emotional I've ever been on the podcast. So yeah, it's been fun. Great. So, what's on the agenda for year two? scripts already in the can, in addition to this one, which um, doesn't really have an ending. I've sent out some interview requests, and I think we can keep it going on its sporadic, unreliable schedule well into a third year. We'll see. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. I'd like to thank our guest and you, dear listener, dear boy, for enduring this doggerel for a whole year. And in the spirit of this series, we conclude with our staff selection of our top favorite song of the 1980s. Fairly well and adieu, you sweet fucking dunce. <laughs>